Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. My name is Audrey Rinlesbacher. I'm the author of The Mission Driven Life and the founder of The Mission Driven Mom. We'd love to grow this podcast, so we're asking you to please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Write a review for us so others know how much you're enjoying it. Share these out with your friends and family, and join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group for the after the show discussions. Today we get to talk about a man I love a lot, uh, but of course I've never met, David Green. Uh, He is the founder of Hobby Lobby, and if you don't know much about him or his life, much of what I tell you may come as a surprise to you. Most of it is drawn from his book called Giving It All Away and Getting It All Back Again, The Way of Living Generously. You can actually buy it at Hobby Lobby at most of the stores. Uh, There's a couple other books that he has written, but he tells most of his life story that he has shared uh, in this particular book. So I'm going to give you an overview of his life as it corresponds with the Laws of Life mission, because it always does when the impact is tremendously positive on the world. Some of what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read right from him because he puts it very beautifully. He says, My childhood was shaped by my father's work as a pastor in rural churches across Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and Oklahoma. In a practice that was common among religious denominations at the time, dad was assigned to a new church about every two years. For me, this meant eight different schools by the time I finished high school. None of these churches ever seemed to grow much larger than a hundred souls. And as a result, small towns, small churches, and small incomes defined our lives, making it a constant challenge for my parents to care for our family of eight. So that really sets the backdrop for what life was like for him as a boy. There were five children, two boys, and they usually lived in a two-bedroom house, which meant that the girls got a bedroom and the parents got a bedroom and the boys got a rollaway bed in the kitchen. They never had a car and they were mostly clothed on the charity of cousins who would send them bags of used clothing so that their parents would only have to buy them socks and underwear and a good pair of shoes. In church during the week, um, they they would call for what they called poundings, which was food offerings usually brought by the pound. And this is what their family ate. So week by week, whatever they ate would be a result of what was given to the church. And he says that's why often they would go weeks without any meat on their table because meat was usually the most expensive commodity and few people donated it. He says, believe me, I learned early the difference between wants and needs. He says, but I don't say any of this to complain. I'm grateful for the life my family lived when I was a boy. I am the son of two people whose feet were were firmly planted in this world and yet who kept their eyes and hearts fixed on the world to come. In fact, um, he mentions that his parents met because there was kind of a revival meeting type experience. They're Christian and his um, father-in-law and future wife were there preaching and he was converted and kind of uh, came to Christ. So 
pretty cool. They had a deep and unshakable faith in Jesus Christ, which flowed from them and filled their home. It was the lifeblood of their home. He says that they were at church at least three times a week. And it was so serious a thing to be at the church, not just because their father was a preacher, but just because they wanted to be in that environment and they wanted to service the community. And that was kind of the lifeblood of their family that when they discovered that a sister was going to have graduation on a day when they would have been at church, like I think on a weeknight, they had to have a serious discussion about whether or not they were going to attend. They did attend, but that's how rarely they actually missed going to church. He says that what he learned from the fierce faith of his parents has shaped every day of his life. He says, I can still remember hearing their voices raised in prayer and how they cried out to God for their children and for the lost people of various communities. They trusted in Jesus Christ completely, and because they did, we saw an almost unceasing stream of miracles. My faith grew as I saw God faithfully provide for our needs again and again. In fact, they were they tried to be so stalwart and impeccable in their word and deed that they told their children that there was no Santa Claus because they refused to lie to them uh, about anything ever. Now, they focused on God and were very stalwart in their home and did all this traveling and uh, or moving, I guess, from place to place to these different congregations. He said that the congregations they served rarely got over a hundred people. And so it was very common that he ran in very small circles, but his parents taught him the principle of generosity. And, um, I want to go through these laws with you. And so this, of course, foundation of love of God was very much a part of his home life. And he developed a relationship with God early on that has grown and grown and grown. He tells some really powerful stories of later on in life, as in laws five, six, and seven, you circle back to those foundational laws and strengthen your relationship with God. He definitely, um, he definitely did that. He says, um, in law two, there was uh, a lot of self-discovery. He was a very hard worker and very devout. But when he really discovered what he loved, in fact, his call came pretty early in his life. He was put on a program called distributive education. And today he says this would be called work study. He said, whatever the name, the idea that I could get school credit for working a part-time job seemed like a miracle to me. And so he landed in a five and dime store called McClellan's And he says, it was at this store that I found my calling. And when we get to laws uh, four and five, we'll talk, I mean, five and six, we'll talk more about those experiences. He doesn't say a lot about other means of self-discovery in his books. And it's hard to get that kind of information when the person is still living. But he talks about how um, he loved everything about it. And he just loved order. And he loved the whole process of everything about um, retail sales. And it was in falling in love with retail that he gained a better and better understanding of who he was. As he did, he eventually did basically every single thing that could be done in a retail store or in a retail corporation, he did. He says... um, 
I cranked out price stickers, scrubbed toilets spotless, and meticulously arranged our store's display window late at night like a painter laboring over his canvas. There was beauty in it all to me. And he just felt so at home there. He knew that he loved absolutely everything about it. He couldn't wait to get up in the morning and go experience something new. And it wasn't like it was one aspect of it. It was the whole experience of offering things to people that were of value to them and making the environment beautiful and orderly. And so he discovered that he liked all of those kinds of things. And so that was an incredible self-discovery time in his life. Now, love of truth was very instilled in him at a young age. He was taught many key principles that helped shape his character. He said uh, work ethic matters, and he learned to work very hard. He says how you and I treat uh, others and our spouses matters. It builds into our children, close friends, and relatives. And so he learned relationship principles at a young age. He says how we spend our time matters. It reveals our heart's desire and our true treasure. And we'll talk more about financial principles and business principles that he learned later on as well as he put his life more and more in line with truth. But he had a solid foundation given him from his parents in terms of his love of God and his love of truth. Um, And he talks often in his book about principles. He says, I want to stress the importance of building a foundation of virtues in your life. I gave you a glimpse into my days as a boy and how my parents instilled certain qualities within me. It's the invisible elements of legacy we so often take for granted, but it was those principles taught by my parents early on that formed me into the man I am today. And so he would be the first one to tell you that absolutely there are true principles, that absolutely he was taught those true principles. He saw them in action in his home. He knew that God would work miracles and he knew that God was a God order and worked through principles. And so he has lived those. One really awesome principle I want to share with you that his parents taught him was the principle of generosity. He says, as surprising as it may sound, my parents were also some of the most generous people I've ever known. This may not seem to fit the picture I've painted of their spare living and meager income, but it was true. I had seen evidence of my parents' generosity through the years in a thousand different ways. Mother might have only three or four dresses in her closet, but if she heard of a woman who needed one, you could be sure mother would soon arrive at the woman's doorstep with a dress in hand. Such acts were repeated time and again. It reminds me a lot of Mother Teresa, that the family didn't have much, but whatever they had was going to be shared and they exemplified that generosity for their children. And you'll see as we talk more about what David Green and his family are doing now, that little seed of generosity, those bits of generosity that were large sacrifices for his mother and father have become this incredible legacy of worldwide giving of millions of dollars. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. But He goes on to say, the most stunning evidence I ever saw of my parents' generosity came late in the 1960s. My younger brother, James, offered to help my father put his financial books in order. Working through records from many years, James concluded that the most my father ever made in a week was a paltry $138. We weren't surprised when we heard this. 
we always knew our parents received little money in return for their labors. What astonished us, though, were the many canceled checks written to church churches for as much as $100. We soon realized that our parents often gave almost their entire weekly salary back to the churches they served. What amazing generosity. What big souls. So that was an incredible example to him as a boy, and he has turned it into a, a generational legacy of generosity. It's really incredible. I'll tell you what he's doing now in a minute. So those principles were instilled in him. And like I mentioned, he discovered his calling early, knew that he loved retail and wanted to spend his life there. But in the meantime, he was poor at school. One of the reasons that he said the best things the teachers could have done for him was to put him in the work program was because he hated school and he wasn't very good at it. He says, um, he said he even had to repeat the seventh grade and I, and he barely got out of high school. He said, I did love to read though. And I devoured books about famous men, about their challenges and how they achieved success. I drank in tales of heroes like Daniel Boone and Abraham Lincoln, yet I read those books largely on my own. So that love of humanity phase where he learns about the world, learns about history, and especially in his case, learns about great men and women who he can emulate is reinforcing his relationship with God. It's reinforcing his commitment to true principles and his desire to do good in the world like these men who and, and women who became his heroes. And so it's amazing to me that in his spare time, outside of school and outside of work, he was, like so many of these other great men and women, getting his own self-education in great works and in history and letting those stories shape his character. He learned to see the world in a new way, and he solidified even more his core values. So we talked about how he heard the call. Let me tell you what he, what he says about this. It was at this store that I found my calling. I probably wouldn't have said these words in those days. I'd been taught that people with callings became preachers and missionaries. There was no category in our theology for people who were called to secular pursuits like business. Now, though, I realize that a man can be as called to business as any preacher has ever been called to the ministry. And uh, he says, I didn't feel like the business of a store was low or unimportant. I loved the idea of providing what people needed. I found that presenting goods attractively or making a store an inviting place was a thrilling challenge. I know that everyone who works in retail, I know that not everyone who works in retail feels this way, but I have found my life's work and the evidence was the great joy I felt in nearly every task. And that also reminds me of our Mother Teresa um, podcast. We talk about the preacher who told her, you'll know that it's the right calling for you because you find such great joy in it. And of course it becomes joyful to the people that you serve in that way. And so you can imagine walking into one of his stores, especially at a young man, when as a young man, we th he's just um, doing everything he can to make this an environment people want to be in where they can find goods and services that they need that are of value to them in, in a, in a clean and beautiful environment. This ties back to, to our uh, law too. He says, by the grace of God, I had success in the retail business from the start. My God given gifts emerged. 
I found new ways of doing things. I received promotions, earned pay increases, and enjoyed things my family had never been able to, like a car and a larger house. So he's going along. He fills this call. He got married. He actually did some military service, came back and got married, I think about 19 or 20, and uh, has had a very happy marriage, married a wonderful woman that he loves. And... um. And just like with the other mission-driven individuals that we've talked about, he too had resistance to his call from some of the people that were very closest to him. It's fascinating to think that here's a guy who is incredibly successful and is providing so well for his family and doing something he absolutely loves doing, would receive any kind of backlash, but especially from his family, one of the reasons he didn't see doing retail work as a calling was because it was never talked about that way. And his parents were kind of unsupportive. Now they were good people and they didn't, you know, they still treated him kindly and with patience, but they constantly for years, they questioned him and kind of caused him to question himself about whether or not he really could serve God. Can you really love God and have a calling making money, have a calling in the retail business? His parents didn't think so. And he had to revisit this question over and over again. It caused him to get closer to God and to think more about, you know, was this really what he should be doing? And, you know, it's fascinating too, because all of his siblings but him went into the ministry because his parents were so adamant about that being the right way to serve God, that you needed to be a minister. It's funny though, that they didn't stop and think, well, we can't all be ministers. Somebody has to provide the goods and services, but they just kind of didn't think that far into it. You know what I mean? Um, and so he talks about how often he would call his mom and tell her of his new success and hope that she was going to be proud of him. And she would always be worried that he was entangling himself with the things of the world. And so he'd say, mom, I'm 21 and the youngest store manager. And she said, David, that's great. What have you done for the Lord lately? Or he'd say, Mom, I'm now a district manager over these stores. And she'd say, yes, David, but what are you doing for the Lord? And kept calling into question his relationship with God and whether or not he really was where he needed to be. And yet he persisted. He pursued it. He continued to love God and worship God and be obedient to those principles he'd learned in childhood. And it created a solid foundation for his business he basically apprenticed in the retail world for 17 years. Now he was paid, but he literally, like I was saying, did virtually every element of the business. And so again, in law five, you feel this calling to do retail, but he did not do his own business for almost 20 years. He worked for other people. He hoped that he would be able to, he worked toward that goal, but he was just happy to learn. And it was a great learning experience for him to look at the, to look at, you know, the retail business from absolutely every angle humanly possible. He says, um, I was a cleaner, a stalker, a checker, a mat, a manager and a regional manager and knew really what he was doing. So the time finally came, uh, it was 1970 and I think he'd been married for about 10-ish years, and they had uh, three kids, I think, and he was working for TG&Y, and he noticed that people kept coming in wanting miniature picture frames, and there really wasn't 
any manufacturer that serviced that market. You know, more and more it was the case that you could print off small pictures from your cameras and people wanted to be able to frame them. And so he thought a lot about it. He thought, well, maybe this would be a good business venture for, for me and my family. So he's already, you know, close to, he started when he was 17. So he's 10, he's 10, 11, 12, 13 years into this by this point. And he goes with his partner and they are able to get a bank to loan them $600 so that they can get the materials and make these picture frames. And it was the seed of what would eventually become Hobby Lobby. So they made this space in the garage and they got the wood and I don't know how they made the designs or what they look like, but they would cut the wood in the garage and glue them together. He says, what a sight. I sure wish we had a picture of all of us, Barbara, little Mart, Steve and me with Darcy nearby working together around the kitchen table. And so he would go to his full-time job and then he would come home and help his family put these picture frames together and his wife and their boys worked on these frames regularly and they paid their boys seven cents per frame, passing on financial principles and principles of, uh, you know, the, of, of management and things to their children. And a traveling salesman took the first samples and found buyers and new orders for our quote factory that was at their house. And he says, this allowed us to make more frames and take the baby steps of employing others to put the frames together. And they did that for three years out of their house, (laughs) just selling to these other stores and making these frames. That's all it was. And so after three years, they got a building that was 300 square feet. They had about $3,000 worth of beads, sequins, art supplies, and miniature frames. He says that's all they had. And many days, only one or two customers would come in the store. But his wife helped to man the store and some of the employees, they, they put money aside. I, don't, I would doubt that they actually took profit from this for quite a while. I think they were just pumping most of the profits back in to carry more supplies and to pay employees. And they lived on his income and it steadily grew and they prospered. A year later, they moved into an old house that was a thousand square feet. And then after five years of doing this side business, he quit his job and they got a, a, a building that was 55,000 square feet. So incredible. And um, they only used 6,000 square feet of it and then they grew into the rest of it and that business grew and grew and grew. Now, I told, I think, a bit of a story on a past podcast. I think maybe it was on The Seven Laws and I talked about how he had this experience where there was a boom. He wasn't living financial principles like he should have in business principles in his business. And he had to get square about those. And he had to return to those fundamental principles. And he realized that's what he needed to do. And he went to God and he was very, very prayerful and humble. And God just told him, this is my business. And so he he started thinking differently about his business and managing it different. And even though there was a huge loss that year, they recovered and they'd been profitable ever since. So now a few years has gone by since that experience when he realized, wow, this, I've kind of been giving lip service to this whole idea that this is God's business, but it really is God's business. And so he tries to run it even more in line with all the principles and to keep himself in line with truth, to keep the business in line with truth. 
and to really treat people the right way. And then he starts having really great success. So he started making the picture frames in 1970. And by the late 1990s, Hobby Lobby was an immense success. So he'd been at this. I mean, he'd been in the retail business for 40 plus years. He'd been at his own business for well over 20 years. And it had grown. And now there were just huge profits, just millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in profit. He says it was exactly what we had hoped and prayed for, yet success came with a certain weight, a sense of concern and burden that pressed down upon me and became nearly oppressive. So night after night, he's worrying, he's praying over what in the world am I supposed to do with this burden of wealth I've been given. There's no way I could ever spend it. I don't know what to do with it. And the Lord reminds him again, this company belongs to me. And so he says, if we keep getting in God's way, if we keep relying on human strengths and thinking, what kind of trouble awaited us? So um, he'd already made incredible measures towards treating his people well. He already had a fantastic environment. He They decided early on that they wouldn't open on Sunday. And over time, I mean, you know, more and more businesses were open on Sunday and they had stayed closed on Sunday they also um, had their managers not work weekends. They closed by eight so employees could be home. They were paying pretty much double minimum wage and good packages and all these kinds of things because they wanted to run the company the way they thought that ga- that God would run it. I mean, if you <laughs> if you want to get your life in line with natural law real fast, that's a perfect way to do it is to consider what God would do if he was running the company, what he would do if he was running anything you're involved with. Um, He says, our employees will care about our business only to the extent that we care about their overall welfare. He says, once when I was praying about our business, I sensed the Lord saying to me, you know, I've put these people in your charge. You're responsible for their well-being. The same principle applies with suppliers and any other individual or company uh, we do business with. How would God do it? That's how we try to behave. And um, and so it's just incredible that he continued to, you know, the business is growing, gangbusters all over the country, just incredible wealth. And he uses this wealth to take better care of these people that he sees it as a stewardship, that it's their livelihood to work for him. And he needs to make their lives as pleasant as possible. He needs to, he has education packages for them and healthcare packages and all kinds of, just whatever he could do that he felt a generous individual, a generous God would do for these people. And so he's at this level of understanding and he's at this depth of principle which is absolutely amazing, better than virtually any corporation out there. And he's, you know, he felt this call when he was young. He's returned again and again and strengthened his core. And that foundation of those four foundational laws, strengthening his relationship with God, discovering more about himself, living more and more true principles. Um, and, And then, of course, continuing to understand the needs of other people and to serve humanity like Law 4 asks us to do. And then in 2010, 
we know that um, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was passed. Sometimes people call it Obamacare. And they were already doing all these wonderful things for their employees. So it wasn't going to be a big deal for them to, I don't know if they even needed to change what their compensation plans were. But the way that this act was structured, it placed huge burdens on American citizens and corporations. And what it meant for even private companies was that they had to pay for, um, they had to pay for abortions. They had to, part of the healthcare package that the government was requiring them to provide would give uh, a medication that would terminate pregnancy after conception. He says, this meant that we were being required to pay for abortions, a practice that we as biblical Christians believe is counter to God's will. What was so disturbing, what was as disturbing as the abortion requirements of the health care law was the fact that the government was allowing exceptions to the law for a wide variety of reasons, but refused to do so for religious reasons. This was un-American and we believed unconstitutional. In fact, the government told them that until they complied with this law, they were going to uh, fine them $1.3 million a day. And of course, they would quickly go bankrupt at that, at that rate. I don't mind admitting, he says, that I was fearful during this time. I lost a lot of sleep. I felt the pressure of it every day. I felt, I felt the weight of the evil that was being forced upon us. And so he finally got to the point where he said, I've got to call a family meeting and a corporate meeting, and we've got to decide together what we're going to do about this law. And we're going to go bankrupt really soon <laughs> if we have to keep paying this fine. So his son called a meeting and he says, um, I was immeasurably grateful for the time we had all spent in the previous years hammering out our values, our mission, the principles of our faith, and our philosophy of inheritance. And I'm going to end with that. They, what, the way that they had structured their inheritance was an end result of the, all of those things that had happened before. And I'm going to end with that in just a minute, but I want to tell you how cool this court case was. We were strong, unified, and filled with common vision. Steve quite, uh, so Steve spoke up at the meeting and went through some different scenarios of how things could play out. And then he said, this is, this is, um, David Green's son, Steve. David Green says, then Steve quietly reminded us that God uses suffering. It might not be pleasant to think about, and it isn't popular in most Christian preaching today, but it isn't undeniable in the pages of the Bible. We might be required to suffer. It might be the will of God. We should be ready to embrace whatever hardships come as the price of obeying God. Everyone thought about these words. There was some more discussion and then we took a vote. It was unanimous. We would fight the court against the unjust demands of the new law. There are times, he goes on, when you simply have to declare your faith for the entire world to see. We did this by putting a huge sign outside of our executive offices in Oklahoma City that read, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Isn't that cool? So through a series of miracles, um, they actually get a hearing, which is like a super huge um, miracle exception that almost never happens. And then they, their attorney finds a loophole so that the fines are put off for six months. And uh, they actually get a court date. And then it's, let's see, the, uh, they granted the 10th court issued a report stating that Hobby Lobby should receive an exemption under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. 
The federal government then appealed the ruling and took it national to the U.S. Supreme Court. Of course, they put it before a lot of other cases to hear it. And after all this prayer and all this work and all this seeking, this is what David Green said. What I felt most during the oral agreements of the case surprised even me. I felt a deep, unshakable, undeniable peace. I sat in that awe-inspiring courtroom with its soaring columns, its busts of great men of the past, and its regal furnishings, and I marveled at the peace that enveloped me. I knew my company was on the line. I knew huge matters of faith and justice I cared very much about would be decided in the coming months as a result of this case, because this was the precedent that the Supreme Court was using for ruling in these types of cases. He said, I also knew the world was watching. None of this shook me. And this was not because I'm a rock of conviction or because I'm an unemotional person. This peace was the gift of God and the fruit of the prayerful decisions my family and I had made. In June 2014, the court ruled in a 5-4 vote, the justices decided in favor of Hobby Lobby. He says, we, they, we were thankful beyond words. And it, isn't that interesting that it was four years that he was burdened with this experience and knowing that they were setting precedent for what was going to be decided in other court cases and how important it was to hire the best attorneys and the right attorneys and to run the court, the, the case the right way. And uh, his, this book is about this vision of generosity that he and his family have laid down. So after all this wealth came in, he started meeting regularly with his family. Like I mentioned earlier, putting together visions and missions and shared values about what their family was about. And what they hammered out was phenomenal. I'm going to just give you kind of the the skeleton of it. And then you can get into the book and read more of the details and, and his suggestions for creating this kind of family legacy. But what they did was decide that they were going to create a trust and that instead of passing the wealth on to their children and making their children wealthy and their grandchildren wealthy, they were going to give the money back to whoever was in need. So that the only people that actually made money from Hobby Lobby and the family were the people that worked for the company. And that if you didn't work hard and do a good job, you didn't stay with the company, you weren't entitled just because you were a family member. They all decided on reasonable salaries for themselves. And then the rest of it goes into this trust. Um, it gets reinvested into the company and 50% of the profits are given away. They don't increase their salaries. They put the rest in the business and this legal structure is in place to allow future generations, the joy of distributing the profits of the company. And so instead of enriching future generations and making it so that they don't have to work and they don't have to go through their own self-discovery journey and figure out what they love to do, they just get to have the joy of inheriting a trust that they can't touch, but whose funds they get to distribute. And so they're in this incredibly beautiful position of being the means of giving money out. I want to end um, with a, a few things from David Green that are just absolutely beautiful. After they had done all this searching and vision writing and all of this, he said that they put down some guiding principles that help govern their family and this, this generosity that 
they're, that they're giving to the world through this trust. One, we are not owners of anything. God owns everything. Two, God wants us to be good stewards of everything he's put into our hands. Three, we all have wealth. Our intellectual capital, our social capital, our emotional capital, our spiritual capital, and our financial capital. Four, stewardship produces responsibility. As stewards, we need to be found faithful. And five, the great joy of stewardship is generosity, giving it all away because we get it all back again in the form of joy. Our job as wide steward is to pass on that wealth, all forms of it, to future generations. Passing on financial wealth is actually the easiest form of capital that you can pass on. Yet in most cases, it should be the last form of capital to pass on because of its inherent danger. I want to end with a couple really awesome quotes from him about this idea of um, mission and our responsibilities. A calling can be anything from retail work to landscaping to carpentry to homemaking, where each wired differently and something unique and significant to contribute. And he ends with a legacy of true value is a legacy made of more than money. It's a legacy conceived in wisdom, nurtured by principle, and sustained by character. I challenge you to, to, to strive in some measure to do something of what David Green has done, to really develop those gifts and give them out. Receive the joy that's there for you in developing and sharing all of the intellectual, spiritual, emotional, and social capital you have to share out and give it all away. Thanks so much for joining me. Please, if you don't have your copy of the Mission Driven Life ebook, go grab a free copy at themissiondrivenmom.com. And please share this out if it was of value and subscribe and we will see you next time.